Hello and welcome back to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me in the studio, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And joining us down the line, we have Spike columnist, Rakib Essan. Hello. Coming up on today's show, the trial of Boris and Trump, three years on from the lockdown and the grisly case of Barbie Kardashian. So on both sides of the Atlantic, two key populist leaders have found themselves in a spot of trouble. They're under investigations of different kinds. So in the US, Donald Trump um, is rumoured to be arrested at any moment. It could happen any time. Might have changed by the time you've watched this in relation to his payoff um, of porn star Stormy Daniels. Boris Johnson in the UK, meanwhile, uh, faced a near four-hour grilling in Parliament um, from the Privileges Committee in relation to his Partygate scandal. Tom, um, do you see some things in common with this development? I mean, we should probably start with Trump first, actually. Mm. Um, what have you made of the Trump arrest? Well, it's fascinating. I mean, this is probably the part of the discussion which could very easily be out of date by the time people actually listen to it. He's been, again, floating the idea that he's going to be arrested in a matter of hours. I mean, that seems to be the reality. It's just whether or not when this is going to take mm. place. Tuesday was the expected date and it hasn't happened Precisely, on, on Thursday evening as we're recording this. But at the same time, I think what it's been a reminder of is the fact that even after Trump was booted out of the Oval Office, there has been this desire bordering on an obsession mm. with not simply humiliating him as, as has happened at the ballot box, not simply with repudiating the Trump era politically, but with locking him up effectively. I mean, yeah. it's the mirror image really of what there was so much pearl clutching around in terms of Trump's rhetoric in the 2016 campaign, lock her up. This is dreadful. We've entered an era in American politics in which politicians do not, A, concede elections, but also will use power to mm. go after their defeated opponents and to make sure they never get anywhere near power again. We are seeing, I think, in relation to this litigation, in relation to the raiding of his house at Mar-a-Lago a few months ago and so on, is, is a mirror image version of that, yeah. really. Now, this is not to say that Trump is a squeaky clean character by any stretch of the imagination. It's not to say that it's a surprise that he has certain mm. cases to answer. But the zeal with which they're being pursued, um, the way in which they've been politicised from the off, I think that's fair to say, the glee with which the prospect of him being put in handcuffs and made to do a mugshot in lower Manhattan has been expressed. Um, you do get a sense that America is veering dangerously closely to sort of banana republic territory. Yeah. And what I think is also a reminder of is the fact that Trump obviously has these authoritarian tendencies. They've been there from the off, lock her up. He was refusing to concede the 2016 election before he realised that he'd won it, really. I mean, yeah. that, he was talking about the fact that he wasn't going to accept it unless he won. Um, but at the same time, there was something about that which was always a comical posture, not least because of the fact that he never really had the authority or the nous mm. to ever make good on any of these authoritarian intentions. It was a kind of a pantomime, it felt like, in many respects. I think the problem that we've seen with this, as we've seen throughout the whole story of Trump derangement syndrome, if you like, is that he says something outrageous and authoritarian, and then in response, the Democrats do something outrageous and authoritarian and kind of yeah. show him how it's done. And I think that's what we're starting to see now. Um, and it's a reminder, at least for me, that when it comes to this argument that we've had in recent years over populism supposedly being such a threat, whether it's to the American Republic or to Britain or to liberal democracy, all that is good as good and holy, the supposed guardians of liberal democracy have done a hell of a lot to undermine it in recent years. And I think this this going after Trump with the zeal in which he's being gone after is, is one pretty stark symptom of that. 
Definitely. I mean, Rakib, do you see it that way? Do you think the American state has become, you know, politicized um, in that sense? Kind of, is there a sort of structural anti-Trump bias? I mean, we've had the Mar-a-Lago raid. We've had all those um, various, um, he's been impeached twice. God, Lord knows how many um, House investigations there's been into him. Uh, and if he's to be arrested, it's for something that would normally be a misdemeanor in New York, essentially um, lying on his um, business records, which is not normally a felony offence. Do, th- do you think this just shows that kind of bias, Rakeem? Well, I, I think that there's a particularly aggressive form of bipartisanship, which has really taken hold in the United States now. Uh, I, listen, I, I think that Donald Trump's record speaks for itself and not in a necessarily in a good way. <laughs> I think that when we're looking at the Republican Party, I still think that there's large sections of the party which are utterly obsessed with Donald Trump. I think that there's also large sections of the Democratic Party who are also obsessed with Donald Trump. And I think that's weakening the overall quality of political discourse in the United States. There's so many issues that need to be tackled in the United States. Uh, police brutality, for example, would be one would be one which we've discussed in previous episodes. But it just seems like the two major parties in the United States they continue to be uh, obsessed with President Trump, and I think that that, that actually takes energy out of um, American politics, and it also means that far too many politicians across the pond, and it's perhaps something that could also be said about politicians in the UK as well, mm. they focus on matters uh, which, in my view, are, are rather distant from the bread and butter concerns of everyday American and British citizens. Yeah, and, you know, talking about politicians across the pond over here, I mean, it's a similar story with Boris, isn't it? You know, there's been this desire not simply to get rid of Boris or to challenge Boris or to argue with Boris, but to even, you know, have him thrown out of parliament, to have him arrested. I mean, do you remember there was that ridiculous private prosecution attempted at Boris um, because of Brexit? And are we not just back there again? You know, we're talking endlessly about Partygate, this scandal that has been raked over a million times. It's probably been examined more forensically than every crime scene you can imagine. Again, he's back in the dock for it. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's a kind of, as Freddie Gray, the spectator, friend of the show, put it earlier this week, it's the Partygate stuff is like a PG-13 rerun of what's going on with Trump. You know, yeah. <laughs> porn stars and dodgy lawyers and money changing hands in questionable circumstances. And we've got a cake that shouldn't have been eaten at a certain time in a certain <laughs> place. But nevertheless, it's a very similar dynamic, which is yeah. essentially to try to use process, quasi-legal processes in the form of this committee um, to deal with what is effectively a kind of political opponent, a political Mm. threat, if you like. It's particularly curious in the case of Boris Johnson because of the fact that ultimately, Partygate wasn't the only thing that did it for him. There were many other scandals that all kind of collected. It all ended with Chris Pincher, of course, who many of us have mercifully forgotten in the intervening months. Chris Pincher, the bum pincher. Exactly. That was the thing that finished him off in the end, and it's easy to forget that. But um, Partygate wasn't the only thing. But ultimately, it set in train um, him being ousted as prime minister by his own party. Mm. So the idea that he hasn't really received any comeuppance for <laughs> Partygate, for locking everyone up and then be you know, having presiding over all these parties number 10 is complete nonsense. There's a there's a vindictiveness bordering on a fetish that is involved with continuing to pursue this stuff, even though everyone has made up their minds about it, even though everyone knows what has taken place and everyone has come to a particular view on it. Me personally, I think it's become a bit of a circus whilst I completely recognize 
the wrongdoing and underlying so much of the horrors and hypocrisies of lockdown. But it's it's an interesting thing as well. So in America, it's a much more um, concerning process because you're involving weaponizing the law very explicitly against yeah. political opponents. That will usher in, by the way, kind of tit for tat and already is between the Republicans and Democrats, which could be a feature of partisan American politics for some time. That's not a good thing. In the British case, it's a bit more milk toast, as we've been suggesting. But I think it's also indicative of a liberal establishment which basically wants to deal with thinks that they can squash populism by squashing its adherence mm. and by process. You know, this idea that if you have this committee presided over by a very imperious Harriet Harman speaking in pious tones about the importance of standards in public life and that Boris Johnson's shown up as some sort of bluffer, that therefore the fact that 17.4 million people decided they hated the whole political establishment and decided to want to, to give them a bloody nose. Therefore, the fact that via Boris Johnson, they found another means to kind of hit out at this political establishment or to overturn Brexit and so on, that they'll all just change their minds. That it will yeah. be over, that those people will cease to exist in some sort of way, that those concerns will cease to exist. So on the one hand, it's um, there's a petty authoritarianness to this, kind of going off people, but it's also ultimately self-defeating as well. I think it tends to take people like Boris Johnson as the authoritative voice of the forgotten mm. man, if you like, even though he was always a slightly imperfect instrument for that sort of populist revolt, and seems to believe really that if they can humiliate him enough times in public, that that desire to reshape politics more in ordinary people's interest will just disappear. Yeah. So on the one hand, it's it's questionable and it's petty and it's authoritarian in some cases, particularly in the US, but it's also doomed to fail, I think, because they're obsessed with going after the individuals, with moralising about them, with pearl clutching about their own behaviour, rather than addressing what the past few years have represented, which is a electoral blow to their authority, which is not which is something that they're not willing to talk about even now, I think. Yeah, and and in general, even thinking, you know, more broadly about the kind of gulf between the people and the establishment, there's almost a sense in which if the establishment can, you know, use the right uh, legal tools, they can somehow hide the fact that they, you know, are completely out of touch, that they don't understand, you know, mm -hmm. the public will just forget that they feel that they don't have a voice, that they feel as if political correctness has gone too far, that there's a huge gap on gender issues, mm -hmm. for instance. All of those things will just be sort of swept under the carpet. I mean, Rakib, that clearly that is not sustainable. And isn't that one of the dangers, I guess, with the sort of current Tory government that, you know, we do have this kind of more technocratic managerial style of politics that's coming back. I mean, there are lots of people who are not going to feel represented by that. No, absolutely. I think that... Uh... That is the problem that we may have in British politics now. We have Rishi Sunak leading the Conservative Party. We have Sir Kistama leading the Labour Party. Um, and both, I think, could be broadly described as technocratic managerialists. Uh, I think that if you ask the average British voter, what does the Prime Minister stand for? What does the leader of the opposition stand for? I think they'd struggle to answer that question. And I think that taps into that perception that they are technocratic managerialists. Um, of course, you don't want radical ideologues um, as, as, as leaders of the two major parties, but you want there to be an understanding that they may have a particular set of values and principles, and that motivates their politics, that motivates the kind of change that they would like to see in terms of improving their own country. And I think that that in itself means that there's there's a fundamental disconnect between Britain's Britain's political classes and the average voter in the British electorate. Let's um, move on to talk about something that really Boris should have been hauled over the coals for, which is lockdown. 
Um, so a year, three years ago today, on the day we're recording this, 23rd of March 2020, lockdown essentially turned our lives upside down. All of a sudden, it was illegal to leave the house without an excuse. Businesses were closed, schools were shuttered, even Parliament was prorogued for a short period of time. Tom, there just hasn't been any kind of reckoning with this, has there, since we've gone back to normal, quote unquote? Not at all. And I think there's different components to that. One of which is that people want to treat it like a bad dream that is now over. And that's mm. completely understandable. I mean, yeah. every, you know, getting past it, not having to talk about these restrictions again. The, when an anniversary like this presents itself, you do kind of wince because you're having to go over uh, questions which maddened our society for so long. <laughs> At the same time, I think there's, there's obviously a vested interest on the part of certainly the establishment to refuse to ask any questions of it. This is because this was not simply a policy that was pursued by the government of the day and potentially opposed or even mildly opposed by the opposition and so on. This was something that there was remarkable unanimity on across the political class, yeah. the media establishment, everyone. So therefore, this creates a real problem when you're trying to talk reopen that particular question because no one wants to it will, everyone's hands will get dirty as a consequence of that but we really still need to have that reckoning for the simple reason that that represent that that moment three years ago where boris johnson went on television and said i'm telling you now to stay at home ushering in the first lockdown was a hard to understand hard to overstate moment in british polit political yeah. history in terms of authoritarianism in terms of the decision in a time of crisis to basically upend all of our liberal legal norms in favor of being allowed to do what you wish so long as it isn't prohibited completely reversing that you were unable to leave your house unless you were given an express excuse i always say as well to people is that even if you agree with the lockdown the way in which it was done should really concern you mm. we, we now all agree although i'm not sure it was ever a point of contention that matt hancock is a bluffer and an idiot and yet yeah. the, uh, during the pandemic as health secretary he was empowered to make and unmake law at the stroke of his pen by fiat parliament was shut down it lobotomized itself it willfully said we are non-essential and went home all of this should horrify you regardless mm. of the debates that we continue to have about how sweden is looking in terms of excess deaths very good by the way in comparison to other countries that lock down harder that aside from anything else this experiment in authoritarianism and liberalism should deeply concern us and one thing i've been struck by this week and i know you've written about this on spikes as well fraser is the fact that the very people who have spent years now talking about boris johnson brexit populism as on as this basically backslide into authoritarianism mm that this vote to leave in a liberal anti-democratic European Union was actually a deeply liberal and anti-democratic thing, that we were somehow on the path to some of history's darker moments and so on, that we were, if nothing else, just a new authoritarianism was present in politics, were more than willing to have Boris Johnson lock them in their houses, Yeah, um, were became cheerleaders for these restrictions. You had... The Labour Party, led by a human rights barrister who struggled to find any problems with these rules other than that they were too late in coming in and were probably too soft. They should be made to at least try to square the circle for us, yeah, to try yeah. to make some sort of argument as to why those principles were jettisoned. The problem at the moment is that there's no pressure to do so because everyone involved has a vested interest in keeping Shum effectively. And, and Rakib, I mean, the harms of this policy are just really mounting now. You know, you think about the health consequences, the number of excess mm. deaths, that we're having that are not related to COVID, the NHS waiting lists, education problems, thousands of children who, you know, were shut out of school and never returned, economic problems like inflation. I mean, 
what, what do you make of that? It's almost like we can't even blame lockdown for those things. <laughs> a lot of people would rather blame Brexit or something, even though these problems are happening everywhere in the world. Well, I, I think that many people who are generally pro-lockdown, uh, they don't want to even engage with the possibility that lockdown contributed to some of the problems that we're experiencing today. Um, as you said, Fraser, the, the astonishing NHS backlog, the ghost children of the pandemic mm. uh, missing from Britain's classrooms. You also talked about the health-related outcomes. Uh, also, you know, the, the degree of social isolation. I'd say that lockdown was particularly hard on people who may have been uh, living on their own, but also families living in flats, mm. um, quite often in what you'd consider to be overcrowded housing. Uh, many businesses struggled a great deal uh, during the pandemic, uh, the lockdown, uh, lockdown-related uh, periods of the pandemic. So I, I think that there's there's no harm in admitting, and I, I'd include myself in this. That at the time I was very much pro-lockdown, uh, and I think that was an understandable position. We, we were, there was a novel virus; there wasn't much understanding um, of the virus at that particular time. But I think there has to be acknowledgement that those policies may have contributed to a number of social and economic problems we're experiencing today. And I think that we need to learn from the lessons of the pandemic, because I think that's an essential part of our pandemic preparedness strategy as a country. Uh, because the, the reality of the matter is that there's no guarantee, you, you can't guarantee that this won't happen again for the next 50, 100 years. Mm. It could happen in the next decade. It could happen in the next five years. So I think it's essential that we learn from the lessons of lockdown, uh, lockdowns, because there were multiple lockdowns over the course of the pandemic, because that will help us as a country to learn from potential mistakes, um, tailor policies a certain way to ensure that the way we manage pandemics in the future uh, don't have such severe negative outcomes further down the line. And Tom, in, in terms of, sort of hangover of all this, what do you think are the kind of consequences for things like liberty and democracy? Because they were just totally jettisoned in this period. I think that's why the the reckoning, should it come, is is also kind of beyond the technical but important arguments about where was a policy, where was the cure worse than disease in a particular yeah. area, where was this, where was the trade off, the cost benefit analysis is often yeah. talked about. I feel like that's a slightly thin way to, to think about what it is that we're dealing with here because what you had was the jettisoning of standard liberal democratic principles in relation to how you govern a country, how you relate mm. to a population. Now, that's not to say that there aren't, of course, times of emergency in which extraordinary measures are necessary. Uh, I think the problem was was that the presumption was on the side of the extraordinary measures from the off. Um, this was a novel virus. There wasn't much we knew about that. But that, therefore, why that necessarily leads to saying, therefore, we must take the most draconian action ever inflicted on yeah. a population, not just in um, peacetime, I should say, but even... Mm the kind of domestic regime during the Blitz era and so on did not reach into people's lives quite the way that the lockdown measures did, as a, as a, as a high court judge has remarked upon saying. The presumption was on the side of, well, of course we need to do this. There was Yes, there was an atmosphere of panic. There was an atmosphere of uh, groupthink amongst different countries. I mean, you saw various analyses that were pointing out that the point at which various countries went into lockdown, it was largely in relation to what their neighbours were doing rather yeah. than where epidemiologically their particular population was. And I think what it showed was, even though many people understandably were shocked at the speed with which freedoms were chucked out the window indefinitely, the way in which Parliament was put on hold, all these sorts of things, it was the 
product of a culture in politics and in public life that had been building for so long that it did make a perverse kind of sense because we do live in an era of the politics of fear. We do live in an era in which the public are primarily seen as a problem to be managed rather than the means through which you sort out social problems. You even suggested during the pandemic that maybe the idea should be to not only trust people to make decisions for themselves but also to be involved, to be galvanised in the product of protecting the vulnerable and so on. You were laughed out of the room. What a ridiculous comment. What ordinary people are are people who will willfully catch COVID and then cough at an elderly relative. That was basically yeah. the sort of view that was taken of them. So you have that, you have that deep mistrust of the public, you have the politics of fear, and you also have just a general kind of growing liberalism, um, which was and technocracy and belief that um, the people with the right degrees always know best, even when it's been established time and time again, they often get a lot of the big questions very, very wrong. All of this was mixed together during the pandemic, came to a head during the pandemic, rather mm. would be a better way to put it. And therefore, I think the reckoning such as it is, is not about which pandemic plan should we follow next time around. I think it's also about saying, how do we get to a position where a country that would pride itself on being a liberal democracy would jettison those principles because it was too scared of what the alternative might possibly be? Not from a position of, this is what we must do, we have assessed it, we've discussed, we've discussed with the public, just out of uh, abundance of caution, Mm. as it were. That is something that's a lot more difficult to deal with because it speaks to how, essentially, our political class have come to relate to us as as members of the public. So it's an important discussion, but it's also a much bigger discussion I think we can sometimes feel like we're having when we talk about which policies worked, which didn't, which we shouldn't repeat and so on. In Ireland, a violent criminal called Barbie Kardashian has been jailed for five and a half years for threatening to rape and torture his own mother. But there's a catch. He's going to be jailed in a women's prison because he identifies as a woman and under Ireland's self-identification law, which was signed in 2015, he has the right to do that. Now, the Irish Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, was, um, said he was surprised to hear about this case and said he might potentially even change the law to do something about this. Um, Rakeem, should he have been so surprised, given the you know how common this is across the Western world? Well, I, I'm surprised that he's surprised. <laughs> these um, in in the Republic of Ireland, uh, the, the, these gender self identification rules, as you said, were introduced back in 2015. Um, it's not a new bit of legislation, put it that way. Uh, I, I think for me though that his his position though is correct. Mm. Uh, by the way, that this uh, this individual should clearly not be uh, in a in in a woman's prison facility. Um, it's clear as day, uh, and I think that this is very similar to the the Isle of Bryson episode in Scotland. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that what we're seeing here is that exceptionally flexible forms of gender self identification. They're unraveling. Mm. I, I think that that that's what we're seeing here, and I, I, and for me, I, I've made this point many times before. If someone wants to identify with a particular gender, they shouldn't be discriminated against. They should be treated with respect and dignity. What they shouldn't expect, though, is that for, for their self identification to be recognised, legally recognised, uh, and and for it to be. Uh, for, for it to be recognised in such a way that they can essentially decide w- which sex-based prison that they can be placed into. I think that you really have to draw the line. And I think that's where I do draw the line, that when it comes to when it comes to prison, the, 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 the criminal justice system, for example, 
a woman is, is adult biological female. There's just there's no gay, and, and and quite equally for me, uh, a man is an adult biological male. And I think that I think when you start trying to think about it too deeply, that's when you start making mistakes. I just think you need to set very simple, clear boundaries when it comes to this kind of situation. And I should probably just say a bit more about um, Barbie Kardashian in, in particular. It's it's quite gruesome. Um, if you're if you're eating your dinner. Uh, while you're listening to this show, um, pause for a moment because this is someone who not only threatened to rape and uh, threatened to rape and torture his own mother, he had also raped his own mother with his father. He had been arrested for um, he had been previously charged with all kinds of assault. He assaulted one of his social workers by tearing out clumps of her hair, tore her eyelid. I mean, the extreme kind of violence is almost unthinkable, mm-hmm. and yet. Somehow, these dimwits in the in the state think that this is appropriate to put him in a woman's prison, and it's that inability to see that this would be the inevitable consequence of this sort of thing, which is mm. so striking. Um, the other thing, and you both already touched on it, is the way in which time and time again you have political leaders who either refuse to acknowledge or to have any knowledge of the obvious downsides put it lightly, the obvious horrendous situations which are created by a policy like gender self-ID, um, as happened with Nicholas Surgeon, say, or in Leo Varadkar's case, just kind of willful ignorance, it seems mm. like, about what is actually happening. It's, it's a feature that you see happen time and time again. You even, by the way, see it in relation to what's been happening in England, because one yeah. thing that was, I imagine, slightly confusing for those who weren't following it as closely in all its grisly details in terms of this debate that that, that we tend to is the fact that you had, for instance, cases that had happened in England, which does not have gender self-ID laws and any, which to the same extent of what Scotland was proposing, and yet there had already been situations in which male convicted sex offenders, rapists, paedophiles, you name yeah. it, had been put place in the women's estate. Essentially because was, our institutions had taken up self-ID even when the law hadn't. And, and that's where the, these laws come from in the first place anyway, mm. is the fact that a handful of quangos and charities and so on have basically said, this is the right policy, this is what makes you a good person, could you please implement it, and these idiots go and do it. But it, but like as you say, exactly, these things had already become sort of implemented de facto anyway. Mm. And this is one of those things I, which really mystifies the debate because you often bring these people up and be like, oh, that's not true. <laughs> oh, that's not <laughs> it can't be true. It's it, so mad. And yet it is. And I think Varag has had his own awakening, it seems like, mm. in this particular case. We'll see if he actually does anything about it. Um, but it's maddening, especially when you take a case like this, not only because of the gruesome crimes that Barbie Kardashian has both been accused of and has actually been convicted of, um, not only the obvious inappropriateness of this. The, the, also, we're not talking here about a question of gender self-ID and a kind of question about someone who's been struggling with their gender identity. Yeah. This is a depraved and disturbed individual. I have no idea why he now identifies as a woman, whether that is whether that is something that he's been harbouring from a young age, or get, especially given the fact that both in name and appearance he presents an almost absurd um, caricature yeah. of female presentation that this, there's something else going on here. But regardless of that, it is not a good idea to have someone with that rap sheet in a women's prison. That should be obvious to almost anyone. And yet, as Rakib was suggesting, people are tying themselves in knots, mm. citing studies that they barely understand um, about trying to suggest that actually it's fine because if you provide the right safeguards and so on, this never happens. If it never happened, then we wouldn't be talking about these stories every couple of weeks, yeah. and yet we yeah. are. So it's it's remarkable. I think that on this issue, more than anything else, anything else on the gender issue, anything else in the whole cultural more broadly, is how people who claim to be fonts of wisdom 
and expertise and have listened to all the right opinions, who've done the research, who've done the work and so on, are complete blithering idiots when the reality that this mm. is about is staring them in the face. If, if this issue doesn't prove that the supposed smart set are not smart at all, then this is surely it. Yeah, and Rakib, I mean, I think it's fair to say that this was the issue that brought down Nicola Sturgeon. Do you think other politicians like Varadkar are finally getting a bit of a fright? You know, are they seeing how insane um, their own policies are or at least seeing, you know, how badly the public are reacting quite rightly to them? I think so. I, I think that the political downfall of Nicola Sturgeon, that was very much a warning shot for many so-called progressive politicians uh, in much of the Western world. Uh, if, if truth be told, I think Varadkar has been very, he's been very firm, to be fair. He, he was asked the question, he gave a very clear answer. Uh, but but then what's he going to do now? Mm. Because, because the, the, these rules are in place when it comes to gender self-identification in Ireland. Is he going to look to reverse that in any way, shape or form? So it, it's one thing saying that, no, this this isn't right. This particular individual should not be uh, located in a women's prison. But what are you going to do about it to prevent that from taking place from a legal perspective? That's what I'd like to see now. Yeah, and, and, and you do sort of see in the sort of SNP context, you have the likes of Hamza Youssef, the continuity candidate, saying, actually, no, we'll press on with the gender recognition mm-hmm. bill. Oh, I understand the Isla Bryson case is wrong, but I still agree with the principle of self-ID. How do people square that circle? Well, I think they want to present this as essentially, I guess it's bad the bad apples yeah. argument around... Mm putting male sex offenders in women's prisons. They're not real trans people, they're faking it or something. Yeah, which is, again, making these sorts of distinctions they wouldn't previously. I mean, it's been even interesting that you've seen a shift in relation to people like Hamza Yusuf being willing to say, maybe this individual who's just been convicted of double rape and has decided that he's female halfway through his trial, maybe he's not actually legitimately transgender and it's okay to misgender him in this particular situation or at least call his trans identification into question. That's actually almost been quite a radical change of position for them. So Mm. so down the trans rabbit hole they actually were in so many respects. But I I think the thing that's um, important to stress about this is that the reason sex-based rights exist is not because all men are violent uh, sex offenders. It's not because all trans people are violent sex offenders. There's one uh, smear that people on the other side of this argument try to say is that the reason that you're talking about these cases of these individuals, whether they're genuinely trans or not, who found themselves in situations where they could exploit sex-based rights for their own depraved benefit. You're trying to suggest that trans people are sex offenders. Far from it. I don't mm. believe most of these people are trans, for instance. I think it's they're quite clearly exploiting yeah. a loophole that idiots have given them in order to access vulnerable women. And the important thing about sex-based rights is that it's not based on the assumption that most men are wrong-uns or that most trans people are wrong-uns. It's just the fact it's a blanket protection which provides dignity and a level of safety for women and girls in situations in which they would otherwise be vulnerable. It's the, it's the height of common sense when you think mm. about it for about five seconds. And yet, for whatever reason, it's a, it's a concept that the supposedly most educated people in society struggle with endlessly in public, embarrassing themselves. And you hope with the remarkably crisp comments from Varekka this week, at least by comparison, that's starting to change at least a little bit. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.